don't know. <clears throat> Are you going to make it through this episode? <clears throat> yeah, I think I'll be fine. I'm fine. I'm good. It's just, uh, just getting the old vocal cords primed up there. I'm fine. It's good. Thank, well, thank goodness. <laughs> welcome to an hour of your life. My name is Kim. And I am Steve. And uh, Kim just kicked the table. Uh, sorry if you heard that. It's fine. Speaking of tables, Steve finished mine. I'm super excited. He made, it was my Christmas present. He made me a table from scratch for the kitchen, and I love it. Still got all my fingers. Yep. And all my toes. It's almost done. It just yep. needs the top little, what's it called? Polyurethane? I'm going to polyurethane the top yeah. so it doesn't get water stains. It's actually stuff. really cool. So the top part, um, we we have a lot of shout outs today. Uh, the top part you got from a local guy by the name of Chad Muterspa in Xenia, Ohio. Um, Just down south of Xenia, runs his own uh, mill. Former co-worker of mine, actually. We taught together for a couple of years. Uh, so Chad runs an o- his lumber mill. So Steve got... Um, the rough lumber. The rough lumber uh, for the top of the table from there. And then also there's a place, I think it's called Antique Marketplace or something like that. So, um, But there's like a little... Uh, like an antique shop place thing. Um, consignments. They do a lot of consignments in there. Yeah, but there's a whole big kind of warehouse sort of thing at the back where they there's a guy, I don't know his name, unfortunately, but he gets reclaimed wood. Like he goes around and gets old barns that have fallen down and stuff. And so the legs and the skirt, right? The table skirt? Well, I just took the, um, yeah, the skirt, but I, I, I took the legs. I just found some old uh, four by fours. And then I worked with those to make the, instead of gluing all the stuff together, I, I bought that old uh, reclaimed wood. But it was and probably, it turned out it was hickory it was by the time I got from into like it. Somebody famous, like a famous Daytonian's barn. Most likely. I think, it, was, I think it came from uh, Wilbur and Orville, maybe. Yeah, it was probably yeah. like the garage from the bicycle shop that got torn probably. down or something. Yeah, okay. four by four in there. But anyway, I took this. You couldn't identify what the wood was because it was so old and weathered. But by the time I cut it and got it, it turns out it's it's hickory. Cool. Yeah, so it's good solid foundation we've been of doing, legs. Yeah, <laughs> we've been doing some other stuff too. Like we've uh, we've done some painting around the house, and I would like to give a shout out to Tim and April Chop C H O P P, who have a lovely little painting business here in the Dayton area. They did a great job. Yeah, they they came in and were able to do stuff. They've done an outstanding job with it. It looks pretty good. Not pretty good. It It looks really great. Way better than what we would have done. Yeah. Uh, And I, that is 100% the voice of experience. This is the first time we've hired somebody to do painting for us because I, I just don't have the time. Well, and I make messes. And so Steve, I'm not allowed to paint anymore because I make messes and ruin things. So we figured it's probably safest if we hired somebody. And what other news do we have real quick before we jump into the show? Uh, We're getting new pot filters. Yes. So I'll I'll be able to see across the table. Sweetwater, where we get almost exclusively all of our gear for the podcast, and I buy some other stuff from them too. Yeah. But a big shout out to Joe Schaefer, who that's one of the big things about Sweetwater. You get a you get a guy who (laughs) know you get who who knows what you've ordered, knows what you need. You can call, you can talk to him, and. 
he, they personalize it very, yeah. very well. When I call Joe, Joe knows me. Yeah, and also, I do want to say, we are not getting paid for any of these endorsements, so these are legitimate endorsement shout-outs that so, people that if, we really do honestly use their products and believe in their the quality of their stuff. Um, so if and the, so we're not getting compensated for any of yeah, these If, if the chops in uh, Sweetwater want to send us... Couple thousand bucks. That'd be awesome. Or you know, some product or whatever. That's yeah. fine too. But we do. That's fine. That's not what we're well, doing. It. Sweetwater we just... sends you candy every time. They do, they, and that's they do. fine. All right, you ready to start the show? I sure am. What are we talking about this week? This week we are talking about a very timely topic: vaccinations. Ooh. I had a button for that. You did. Yeah. Um. You want to tell them, or can I tell them? No, I'll tell them. All right, what? So, like I said, this uh, we're gonna in this episode we're gonna try to tackle vaccinations. And this week, last Friday, I was able to get round one of my COVID shot. This week, yay! Now, just so you know, I'm not like that one community down in Florida that was doing all this stuff. I didn't jump the line. I'm not that important. But I happen to be at the Veterans Administration here in Dayton, Ohio. And I was able to get my vaccination on a space-available basis. So basically what the VA here in Dayton was doing is you people can call ahead with the prioritized categories, and you're able to call ahead and make a category, like if you were in 1A or 1B, depending, like if you're first line, whatever, and do all that stuff. Basically, you can call ahead and make an appointment. I happen to be there while they were, uh, they're giving the shots, so they take care of all the appointments first, but if you're there, they will go ahead and they'll give you the shot, basically on a space-available thing. So the doctor's philosophy said that uh, they want to get as many needles in veterans' arms as possible. They have a mandate that no dose will go to waste. Um, Which is great. Yeah, it's... If any lawmakers or whoever is listening, I think that this model is perfect because we know that the vaccines only are good for so long in the refrigerated or frozen, whatever conditions. I love this space available idea that, um, you know, you set up appointments at this from this time to this time. And then after that, it's, yeah, they were, it's space available and yeah. anybody that shows up, if, if get they a had, vaccine until they're gone, if they had no appointments and there were no space available line, they were going down to the lobby and say, Hey, we can accommodate people. If you want to get your shot, come on up and get your shot right now. So big shout out to the Dayton VA. They're, they are doing this right, in my humble opinion. Um, but this show is not about the COVID vaccine, even though we're going to talk about it a little bit. I mean, COVID vaccine is the uh, vaccine du jour. But as we talk about the partnerships and the cooperation between government and the labs developing the vaccines... I think you're going to learn a lot. I know I did. Believe it or not, there is bureaucracy no. in, in the vaccine. No yep, way. Yep. So we're going to give you some definitions, some history, the FDA process, which is important for you to learn about all this stuff. And we'll also try to explain how the COVID vaccine has been pushed through the, the whole process so quickly and what emergency approval means. But again, this show is not about the COVID vaccine, but it is important right it's now. Timely. It's timely. So, you know, look, I remember as a kid getting the polio vaccine. So in my kindergarten class, they, those being those other than us, came in and they gave a sugar cube to us with a little drop of the vaccine in it. Hmm. 
Later, they came back and they gave us all a shot with the uh, the air gun in the arm. Well, that's the old they, they bait just lined and switch. all us little kindergartners up, and I, yeah, it was like that's the old bait and switch. Like when we took Jack, and we told him he's going to <laughs> Disney. <laughs> Here, guys, have some sugar. Next time, we're just gonna we'll and we'll come back and see you again and give you a shot. <laughs> I don't remember anybody crying, but that was a long time ago. Look, times have changed. Um, I have been shot up with every vaccine under the sun because of the United States Army. Mm-hmm, I don't think mm-hmm. I will ever get plague, botulism, or a long list of any other diseases that are out there because I've, I've I've been shot up with all of them. I'm here. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we could not have a show without... Conspiracy theories. I'm so excited for that yeah. part. So but we're saving the best for last. Yeah, we're going to save that. Kim's going to talk about that. But yes. Kim's going to start off with a um, little information here. All right. So vaccination is the administration of a vaccine to help the immune system develop protection from a disease. Vaccine. And this is basic immunology 101. It's basic, not even 101. Super like, like remedial immunology. Vaccines contain a microorganism or a virus in a weakened, live, or killed state or proteins or toxins from the organism. It's injected into the body, and the body will adapt to the vaccine and begin to create immunity to whatever disease the vaccine is supposed to protect you from, um, like whatever infectious disease it is. When a big enough percentage of the population has been vaccinated, then we obtain that herd immunity that you all have been hearing about. Herd immunity protects those who may be immunocompromised and can't get a vaccine because even a weakened version would harm them. And we know people, um, I used to have one of the kids that I took care of, um, you know, in one of the, the preschools that I taught at was allergic to the MMR vaccine. And so he couldn't get it. And so he was dependent upon herd immunity. The effectiveness of vaccination has been widely studied and verified Verified. Crucial point there. Vaccination is the most effective method of preventing infectious diseases. Some of the stuff you're just going to have to take our word for it. Yeah. Widespread immunity due to vaccination is largely responsible for the worldwide eradication of smallpox. And the elimination of diseases like polio and tetanus from much of the world. So let's look at some definitions. The term inoculation is often used interchangeably with vaccination. However, those terms are not synonymous. Vaccination is the more commonly used term, which actually consists of a quote-unquote safe injection or a shot that's produced in a lab. This is distinct from inoculation, which uses unweakened live pathogens. So I'm going to use smallpox as an example of an inoculation. Smallpox is the injection of the variola virus taken from a pustule or scab of a smallpox sufferer into the superficial layers of the skin, most commonly on the upper arm of the subject. If you listen to our Ben Franklin episode, um, you might remember that this was what Ben used to treat his kids with I, you know, against I think, smallpox. I think this came like they called it cowpox too. Yep. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a slightly different variation, yeah. but yes. It's got the same bug. Uh, yeah. That's Dr. Harmon there <laughs> talking the same bug. <laughs> um, if you're old enough, you'll have a smallpox scar on your arm. I've got it. Some younger people will have it if they traveled into an area that had smallpox before eradication of the disease. My kids got it. And confirmed applications of inoculation for smallpox happened all the way back in China in the 1550s. 
Vaccinations began in the 18th century with the work of Edward Jenner and the smallpox vaccine. Vaccinations have been met with some reluctance on scientific, ethical, political, medical safety, religious grounds. We're going to talk about all of that stuff. We call them anti-vaxxers. Although no major religions oppose vaccination, and some consider it an obligation due to the potential to save lives. So... There is just the the groundwork of vaccination. So I'm going to go back right now, and we're going to talk about how war and World War II kind of egged this on and got us up to where we are with modern-day vaccinations. So military needs drove the development of many vaccinations that we still use today. War and disease have gone hand-in-hand for centuries. Wars basically are super spreaders of disease as large groups of soldiers move across borders and living in close quarters, they carry and they encounter disease in new places. I know like when we would move into the barracks, like in Grafenvir, we call it the the Graf crud because you had all those soldiers all of a sudden living in a small confined space and we'd all get like a little cough and and stuff like that. I mean, nothing serious, but it's, it's, it's a... Certainly. And especially in, ter- in terms of wartime as well, when you have open wounds, even if they're just superficial wounds that you might get from, you know, not not even being shot or anything, but just getting cuts or scrapes or whatever, then you now yeah. have another area on your body for these back, things to enter in. Yeah, a bug to get into you. So, like we said, wars are super spreaders of disease. As large groups of soldiers moved across borders, they carry and they counter disease in a lot of new places. They travel from point A to point B. They're they're carrying diseases and maybe that new population doesn't have it and so they're they don't have any natural immunity to it. Whatever. That's just the way it works. Much of the time soldiers move into crowded resource poor environments like resource poor, I'm talking like water, basic sanitation that allows disease to thrive. Before World War II, soldiers died more often of disease than of battlefield injuries. The ratio of disease to battle casualties was approximately 5 to 1 in the Spanish-American War and 2 to 1 in the Civil War. Now, that can probably be explained because in the Spanish-American War, they were fighting in tropics, and so there were different diseases the Civil War, we're fighting on our own turf, and so there was probably you know natural immunities kind of built up to this. Again, I'm not a doctor. That's just my speculation. Improved sanitation re- reduced disease casualties in World War I, but it could not protect the troops from the 1918 influenza pandemic. Mm. Now, if you want to learn more about the 19 in, 1918 pandemic, you can listen to episode 34 of An Hour of Your Life called Pandemic 1918, and you will learn more than you... No, I don't want to say learn more than you want to know. You will learn a lot about <laughs> pandemic. And we actually, we did that as a timely thing. We started that off right at that the beginning. the beginning of coronavirus. Yeah, it was at the beginning yeah. of coronavirus. Yeah. During the outbreak of the 1918 pandemic, the flu accounted for roughly half of all the U.S. military casualties in Europe. That's, that's a lot of soldiers. That is a lot yeah, of soldiers. Yeah, and it soldiers. takes a lot of resources. So as the Second World War, Second World War, tongue twister tonight, was fought in Europe, the U.S. military believed that infectious disease was as tough an enemy as they would ever encounter on the battlefield. So they created a new partnership with industry and academia to develop vaccines for soldiers. 
the military saw vaccines as a good thing for the simple reason as they reduced the overall number of soldiers in sickbay and vaccines were more effective than most therapeutic measures. So this reminds me of something that we saw the other day. And if you really feel like going down a rabbit hole, just Google World War II propaganda posters. We, you saw one, I don't know if it was on Facebook or what, but you showed me one the other day that had like a picture of a girl and it said, she may look clean, but she might have syphilis. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. <laughs> have you been reading my notes? I haven't, actually. Okay, so this partnership generated unprecedented levels of innovation that lasted long after the war was over. As industry and academia began to work with the government in new ways to develop vaccines, they discovered that many of the key barriers to progress was not scientific, but organizational. Mm. Think, uh, when I hear organizational, I think bureaucracy. Yay, now, red tape. Yeah, now this is not necessarily a bad thing, but we are seeing this today with COVID. The labs and scientists have developed the vaccinations, but it does, it takes the government to get it out to the public. Mm-hmm. In the case of COVID, now we're in, in emergency situations. So in the case of COVID, the federal government created Operation Today, created Operation Warp, Warp Speed to get the resources, the vaccination, and all the, to get the labs going to be able to develop and create the vaccine. Now the feds are responsible to get the vaccines to the states so the states can d- distribute the vaccines. At this point, this is where the politicians get involved with the intent that each state knows how best to get the vaccines into the arms of its own citizens. Because I imagine there's a huge difference between vaccinating New Yorkers in New York City as tightly as they are compacted oh, sure. versus going out to Montana or Wyoming where you know you may not have a neighbor for 40 or 50 miles. Right, so, well, and the resources too. I heard that Disneyland and Disney World are opening yeah. up for vaccination. Yeah. So like, you, you know, they have so, the capability to have it, it, thousands of people. And that is only smart. Let the local people, things work oh, sure. best when the locals take care of it because we don't need big government telling us how to do this. Right. And so that it's, it's a good philosophy. I agree. If the local politicians can make it work. Agreed. It is interesting to watch how each state is doing this, some with great success, and we're talking in today's terms, and some states right now are flat out bungling mm. getting, getting the vaccinations, not getting the shots. Not pointing any fingers. Not pointing any fingers. In 1941, fear of another pandemic, similar to the 1918 pandemic, uh, was the, the Army was thinking about as we prepared for a second world war, and war kind of loomed in the horizon the U.S. Army organized a commission to develop the first flu vaccine. They had not forgotten about 1918. The commission was part of a broader network of federally coordinated vaccine development programs. These programs enlisted top specialists from universities, hospitals, public health labs, and private foundations to conduct epidemiological surveys and to prevent disease of to re- prevent diseases of military importance. Bet you didn't think I could say that I word. I didn't, did. actually. Yeah, I'm really I proud did. of you. <laughs> yeah, there. All right. Wait till this pop filter is gone. <laughs> Wartime vaccine programs expanded the scope of the military's work in vaccines well beyond its traditional focus on dysentery, typhus, and syphilis. She yes. may look clean. <laughs> yeah, I said syphilis. Because syphilis was a major concern of the military. <laughs> Go figure. During World War One, 
This is unbelievable. During World War I, it was estimated that 18,000 soldiers got a venereal disease each day. From whom? 18,000 a day. Where were they going? I don't know. To get these VD in the world. By 1944, that number was reduced to 606 per day. Oh, is that all? Yeah. Now, this is a combination... They were able to reduce this through a combination of education and medicine. And I know we got off the topic of vaccines because there's no uh, there's no vaccine for gonorrhea or syphilis, but it was just an, some interesting information that that came up as we we're doing the research for this episode. Mm. Ugh. So they so don't no vaccine for gonorrhea or syphilis. So be careful. Keep that in mind, all you boys and girls in uniform out there. Um, these new research initiatives targeted influenza, bacterial meningitis, bacterial, bacterial pneumonia, measles, mumps, neurotropic diseases, tropical diseases, and acute respiratory diseases. And those diseases not only put the military at risk, but they were also a risk to civilian populations because you don't want to bring something home to your wife. These programs were not only successful to the scientists in the scientific world, but they were also an example of success between organizational purpose and efficiency. Wartime vaccine programs expanded... Organizational purpose, meaning the bureaucracy. Right. right. Wartime vaccine programs expanded the scope of the military's work into diseases like syphilis, and they provided great examples of cooperation and efficiency and how the two can work well together. Scientists had been laying the groundwork for many of these vaccines, flu included, for years before, but it wasn't until World War II that many basic concepts were learned from the laboratory and then developed into working vaccines. The newly formed Flu Commission pulled together knowledge about how to isolate, grow, and purify the flu virus and rapidly pushed development forward. So they want the, uh, the, the uh, when you say how to isolate, we're not talking social distancing. No, we're not. Okay. Uh, it, it, we're, we're figuring out how this specific flu virus works. And so it's really very similar. Well, they want the little to flu thing, the bugs now. to isolate from themselves. Y- yeah, basically, okay. essentially. It's very similar to what's going on now with COVID. Um, there's a commission put together and they very quickly figured out how to do this. Um, they pushed development towards devising methods to scale up manufacturing and evaluate the vaccine for safety and efficacy, just like today. Under the leadership of virologist Thomas Francis Jr., the commission gained FDA approval for their vaccine in less than two years. It was the first licensed flu vaccine in the U.S. Grease lightning. Right. In comparison, it takes 8 to 15 years on average to develop a new vaccine today. So they did it in two, which is super fast. COVID vaccine... We're going to talk about that. ...took even less time. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that and how that happened. Flu vaccine, as the Army later discovered, required tweaking annually because flu strains of the virus are different every year, and of course that's still true today. But even so, the timeline from development to use was a remarkable achievement. Military needs drove vaccine development. Wartime programs like the Flu Commission then developed or improved a total of 10 vaccines. I wonder, I wonder if in the Pentagon they had a little sign that said Office of Flu Commission. I bet they did. I bet they did. They, they had a total of 10 vaccines for diseases of military significance, some in time to meet the objectives of particular operations. For instance, the botulinum toxoid, 
was mass-produced prior to D-Day in response to bad intelligence that Germany had loaded V-1 bombs with a toxin that causes botulism. And of course now, botulinum toxoid, we use for a couple of different things. We, that's Botox. I got a shot of botulism in my arm. They did it to us in Desert Storm, which 30 years ago this week kicked off with the that's, air raid. Yes, and they right. And they vaccinated us with botulism. We had to walk through a tent. And they gave us a shot in her arm, and about 10 feet out of the tent, everyone would reach up and, like, grab their arm because it would sting and burn for, about, for about 20 or 30 seconds, and then it was all gone. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Um, another example is Japanese encephalitis vaccine was developed in anticipation of an allied land invasion of Japan, and some of those vaccines were actually really crude by today's standards. And, in fact, some might not even receive broad FDA approval today, but they were effective and they were timely. Wartime um, make make strange things happen Does sometimes. What it, it is what it is. So how did these programs develop so many vaccines so fast? Scientists often conducted research at their home institutions, which allowed the military to gain access to valuable expertise and facilities in the civilian sector. Again, great cooperation going on right here. Yep. The government used no-loss, no-gain contracts that covered the cost of research and occasionally indirect costs, but did not provide a profit to these people developing this stuff. Under normal circumstances, universities would have restricted this uh, technocratic reorganization of the research agenda, but the threat of war kind of eased that and softened it. Because most manufacturers also begin to work on projects with little to no potential for profit because vaccines were recognized as an essential component of the war effort participating in their development was seen as a public duty. Mm. The USPHS, or the United States Public Health Service, in Rocky Mountain Laboratory in Hamilton, Montana, with industry as a willing partner, uh, developed these wartime programs, forged a new research format that effectively translated laboratory findings into working products. Again, this is just great cooperation between the government and the civil sector to get these things out because... They they saw the statistics and they knew how important these were and it was just seen like we said as it was necessary for it, it was just a necessary part of the war effort you know we had victory gardens and all other stuff these people were doing their part at this time intellectual property protections were less of a barrier than they are today mm. and so information sharing was a little bit uh, more cooperative. And I just think, you know, the longer a government is in place, the more laws and the more things. Like in Germany, it I, it takes like an eight. I think it's an 80-hour class just to go fishing. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people realize that um, when you when a company invents a new drug, then they have a patent on that drug for, I want to say it's like five or seven years or something like that. I don't know. So they own a patent on that drug. So there can't be any generics made while they hold that patent. But this is all new since right. then. And, yeah. Well, yeah, now. Um, so it's very hard. That's why it's because they, that's why drugs are so expensive. Medicine is so expensive because it can be because there's only one manufacturer and then as soon as a generic, that patent runs out and you can get a generic, that's when the price drops significantly. But because there's only one manufacturer for those first seven years or however long it is, that's why they can charge you so much. That's 
That's today. Today, yes. Yeah. But without these restrictions, teams were able to consolidate and apply existing knowledge at a much rapid rate. And again, they were doing it for the war effort. They weren't worried about making money. They right. were doing it because they believed it needed done for the war effort. Barring management techniques from industry, Flu Commission head Francis and his fellow project directors exercised top-down authority, transferring people, resources, and ideas to the most compelling projects. So they were able to work and move and shift to be the most efficient that they could. Project directors also managed development in an integrated fashion, coordinating activities across disciplines and developmental phases so that everyone involved understood the upstream and downstream requirements for vaccine candidates. I think we're kind of seeing that with COVID. I, I think we're seeing that right now. This yeah, co- actually, but I don't know. I just get that feeling. It kind of has done my heart good with, you know, you have Bill Gates who and we'll, we're not even touching on that conspiracy theory. But, you know, we have private citizens that are offering to fund um, development and research just out of the theoretical goodness of their heart. Now, you could argue that he wants... Um, you know, that the, nobody is completely Well, you all know why, because he wants control. No, yep, because he wants people to stay alive and buy his product. So I don't know that it's yeah. complete altruism, but at the same time, I mean, it, it I, is really nice I, to I see think people kind of working I think together. that's taking the lead people right there. Whatever, yeah. I don't know. Anyway. I don't want to get caught up in that. Yeah, no, we'll do This that. cooperative, <laughs> uh, duty-driven approach to vaccine development persisted into the post-war era, even after the urgency and structure of wartime programs dissolve. So the war's over. It's not quite as... It's not a, a hot-button issue it, anymore. It, yeah, hot-button yes. issue. Look at that 2021 <laughs> term you're using. Okay. This contributed to high rates of vaccine innovation throughout the middle of the 20th century. Don Metzger, a virologist who began working in the vaccine industry in the 1960s, explained that in an interview that pharmaceutical companies looked at vaccine divisions as a public service, not as huge revenue generators. So something changed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, just the whole and honestly, thing going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a difference too, I think, between vaccines and medicine. So yeah. pharmaceutical companies, I mean, I would say possibly that that's still true today, that pharmaceutical companies well, if, look at if vaccines. if everyone gets the disease and dies, they have no one to sell their medicine yeah, to. There you go. There you go. Back to the Bill Gates theory. When the military requested limited-use vaccines, the industry felt they were just obligated to, uh, to do this. Not even ob- obligated, but they were obliged, mm-hmm. which I think is if you can see the subtle difference. Oh, yeah. They, they felt it was their, their patriotic it. duty to do this. So yeah. they... they they did it. But a series of legal, economic, and political transformations in the 1970s and 80s disrupted this military-industrial partnership. So could we call this big... Is this the beginning of Big Pharma? I think it is. This is the beginning of Big Pharma. Yeah. Without industry uh, cooperation, new vaccine development stalled, and some existing vaccines were discontinued. Mm. This is one of the reasons our current vaccine developmental capabilities were not keeping pace until the need for the vaccine of COVID-19. Operation Warp Speed was born because of this need. Scientific obstacles can be formidable as our continued struggle to develop vaccines for tuberculosis, malaria, and HIV demonstrate. Mm -hmm. With the recent exception of COVID-19, many vaccines are stalled in the pipeline for reasons 
that have absolutely nothing to do with science, hmm. but bureaucracy and money. This is not a good thing. I wonder if it'll change after the COVID stuff. I doubt it. Hmm. I doubt it. Well, how are vaccines developed and how do they receive approval? Well, just like any medication or procedure, no vaccine can be 100% safe or effective for everyone just because each person's body can react differently. While minor side effects like soreness or low-grade fever are relatively common, serious side effects are actually really rare and occur in only about one out of every 100,000 vaccinations. And it typically involves allergic reactions that can cause hives or difficulty breathing. Now, let me say right here, so I got my shot the other day, and I'm not having any reactions. My arm is is not sore. I mean, I can push where I got the vaccination, and it's no more sore than any other shot I've ever gotten in my life. You said you felt a little the no, like I a think, lethargic. No, I think that's mainly because we've been staying up till one o'clock because of your oh. work schedule, and I had to get up really early that day. Okay, and so I think that's why I was so tired. I don't. I don't think it had anything at all to do with the shot okay that's fair so i would say i have zero side effects from this vaccination now we'll see in 10 years if i turn into a fleshy-headed mutant but right now i'm fine i mean you just got round one we'll see what happens with round two if you have any you know back to back i mean not back to back. you know what i mean like the second might be a little stronger i go back to 22nd so we have a friend that has allergies to the flu vaccine, but because of specific health reasons, has decided to go ahead and get the vaccine. You know who year. I'm talking about, don't you? I actually don't know who you're talking about when okay. you wrote these I'm going to pause for a second. Now do you know who I'm talking about? Now that you have paused and unpaused and enlightened me, yes, I do. So this part, Steve obviously did the notes for this part of the show. Um, this particular friend is immunocompromised. Uh, so she is she gets sick all the time anyway. So she just goes ahead and gets the vaccine um, to keep her as safe as possible. She coordinates with her doctor. Um, she receives her vaccine at the emergency room. Just She also has an problem. allergy to this the flu vaccine. Right. So she gets the vaccine at the emergency room just in case there's a problem. So she does it responsibly. Um, vaccines, however, And it just though, takes a little coordination with the doctor, and the sure. doctor does it. And they have access to your health records and stuff, so they know that she's allergic to it. And so they're more than willing to work with it's you. It's a coordinated effort. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and vaccines are the safest they've ever been in history, and each vaccine undergoes rigorous clinical trials to ensure their safety and efficacy yeah. be- before the FDA approves them. Now, prior to human testing, vaccines are run through computer algorithms to model how they'll interact. That's important for later. They model how they interact with the human immune system, and then they're tested on cells in a culture. During the next round of testing, researchers study vaccines in animals, including mice, rabbits, guinea pigs, and monkeys. It's interesting that they don't study regular pigs, which are very similar to humans as far as systems go yeah I, well you know i guess the doctors know what they're doing with this obviously but yeah. i i just have heard that that pig systems are very similar to human systems so i'm surprised that they don't do more on pigs anyway vaccines that pass each of these stages of testing are then approved by the fda to start a three-phase series of human testing advancing the higher phases they only only if they're deemed safe and effective at the previous phase and the people in these trials that's important for later the people in these trials participate voluntarily and are required to prove they understand the purpose of the study and the potential risks. So I bet they, they have to sign a waiver. Uh, they can't come back and sue later. 
During phase one trials, a vaccine is tested in a group of about 20 people with the primary goal of assessing the vaccine's safety. Phase two trials expand the testing to include 50 to several hundred people. And during this stage, the vaccine safety continues to be evaluated and researchers also gather data on the effectiveness and the ideal dose of the vaccine. You know what? And thank goodness for these brave people that are willing to go out there and do that. Absolutely. For all of mankind. Seriously, this is this is a big, big thing. And we should really give all these people a round of applause Absolutely. for what they're doing. And I'm serious about this. Thank you, human test subjects. Um, sometimes they are compensated for their trouble, but I don't think it's like a ton of money or anything. It's not like, I mean, they might get like, uh, I don't know. Like don't even guess room and board or something. I don't know. But sometimes they do get compensated, but it's not a lot. Uh, so vaccines that are determined to be safe and efficient, then advance to phase three trials, which focus on the efficacy of the vaccine in hundreds to thousands of volunteers. And that phase can take several years to complete, and researchers use that opportunity to compare the vaccinated volunteers to those who have not been vaccinated to highlight any of the true reactions to the vaccine that occur. And again, pay attention because we're going to talk about this in the COVID vaccine. Yeah, now this phase um, with the phase three trials, a lot of times you might see advertisements on TV. Do you suffer from da-da-da-da-da? We would like to see you. That's phase three. Phase three recruiting. And they were doing stuff. that for COVID too. Yeah. So those are, that's phase three trials. So if you ever, um, you know, if you want to take part in one of those, good on you. Uh, know that once they make it, they start advertising on stuff, then they've already been tested for quite a long time on quite a few people. Um, and if a vaccine passes all of the phases of testing, then the manufacturer can apply for licensure of the vaccine through the FDA. But before the FDA approves use to the general public, they extensively review the results to the clinical trials. They review the safety tests, purity tests, manufacturing methods, and then they establish that the manufacturer itself is up to government standards in many other areas. Which is a huge bureaucracy that can be expedited if necessary. Instead of that document sitting on someone's desk for two months, it can be expedited. Pay attention. We're going to talk about that. However, safety testing of the vaccines never ends. Uh, And we'll talk about that a little bit in the conspiracy theory portion. After FDA approval, the FDA continues to monitor the manufacturing protocols, batch purity, and the manufacturing facility itself. Additionally, most vaccines also undergoes phase four trials, which monitors the safety and efficacy of vaccines in tens of thousands of people or more, across many years, and that allows for delayed or very rare reactions to be detected and evaluated. So before we go into the conspiracy theories, let me take a minute because I was rudely interrupting Kim, and thank goodness for these pop filters because I was getting the uh, the death stare. Yeah, are you sure you want to get these new no, smaller ones no, that I, I can don't. see your face? But let me, let me go ahead and take a minute, and let's explain how COVID-19 has come to fruition in such short order. So let's just, let, let me let me just take a couple minutes to talk about that. So we've already talked about each of the principles of why, but let me lay them out as best as simple little me can understand. First, in the simplest terms of the COVID-19 vaccination, 
has been tweaked from existing similar vaccines that are already in use. So we talked about that during World War II, that every year we know that the flu vaccine is tweaked. Yeah, we it's we, we a know bit that different. It, yeah, yeah. So the COVID vaccine that we have is not. When I say this, take it with a grain of salt. Is not a brand new, developed vaccine. It was tweaked, in my words, tweaked from an existing vaccine. So that took a lot of time and years off this development process. Right, and I wonder if you do you know probably not. Do you no, know I don't what know. the original vaccination? No, I don't know. Was? I mean, but you know, there's been all there's been SARS vaccines. Oh and, yeah, 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 and stuff like that. There's, Absolutely, there's, there's similar strains. This is just a new. Yeah, one of those. Yeah. And, and, and I'm work. not a doctor, so don't even try to press me for that. But yeah, just no, that's take it. It probably know. was some, you know, a SARS yeah. vaccination. Yeah. So that from everything I've read, it's it's it was an existing vaccine that was tweaked, and it was not something they had to come up. It's not from scratch. From, yeah. So they, I mean, they obviously they had to see if these other vaccines would work, and so they were using existing vaccines, and then they tweaked each of these to get it where it is. So. All that stuff about that. People just, are so smart. People are very, very smart. Ugh. At least the people who are developing these vaccines. Yeah. I yeah. don't want to umbrella every people. Yeah. <laughs> Next, the different phases were consolidated and sometimes run concurrently to shorten the testing timeline. So while phase one was going on, they were already working. They didn't, they didn't have to wait for phase one to finish. They started phase two getting things geared up for phase two testing to, so again, you didn't have like to wait for like finding the people finding and all the people. of that. Yeah. Kind of and stuff. so yeah. it was quickened to make this go through a lot faster. Now we talked about computer models. Kim did being used to shorten develop and testing phase, the algorithms. So obviously since the la- you know, there, there's, there's new computer technology, there's new algorithms, there's new, ways to do this so they were able to simulate and run all these algorithms to to expedite what it was going on so they were able to basically compress maybe five years and i'm making this up i don't know so don't quote (laughs) me on this but they were able to compress let's say five years of research and results into you know right now with the computers that they were doing so the computer the technology we have now was able to expedite the, the COVID-19. So I, I predict without the hindrances, we might see faster vaccinations roll out in future needs based on what we're doing with the computers right now. Finally, let's talk about what emergency approval means. The COVID-19 vaccination is not FDA approved right now because of the techniques being used to quicken the development like concurrent testing in cases. Also, the COVID-19 vaccination has not been tested in all age groups. That's why it's not approved to be used in kids under 16. So, you know, that may be, again, this is me, you know, it may, yeah, it's as as an example. So, you know, if they had to test it in kids under 16, that might have added another year of testing to the process. Sure. So they've been able to shorten the process. It can't get full FDA approval until it's tested across all all age groups, and mm-hmm. this, this, and that. So it, it's it's not a big mystery. I feel perfectly safe. I did it myself because I feel perfectly safe in doing it. 
after I understood, but I did a lot of research and educated myself on this because I didn't want to be the human guinea pig, but after <laughs> spending, a, I don't want to say a considerable amount of time, but after spending time to research and really understand what it means, I felt perfectly safe getting this vaccination. Eventually, it will be approved for all ages, and most likely, it will need to be tweaked every year, just like the flu vaccine is. And I'm not making that up. I read that in a study that, yeah, I, I wonder, mean, we're already starting to see how it's mutating a little bit. Sure, And so, sure. I mean, this might be a, a vaccine we have to get every year, just like the flu. I wonder if there will be a way that they can combine it with the flu vaccine in the I future. Who knows? Just get your I, annual I shot. I mean, it's not the flu. Right. So no, I but I I'm saying like I, that way you can just get shot. one. Yeah, just yeah, one big thing. I don't thing. know. Maybe one drug will cancel out another and you have to Who do knows? it. Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but I'm just whatever. Maybe they can. Maybe you'll have to wait. We don't wait 15 years for the FDA to approve the annual flu vaccine. Okay, so here's some common sense for you. We don't wait 15 years for the FDA to approve the annual flu vaccine every year because the basic research and testing has already been done. And folks, this is similar to how the COVID vaccine was developed. So pay attention to your memes, do whatever you want to, but you can take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, but do some research here so that do you will feel safe. Yourself. Yeah. So yeah. as Kim will get into the conspiracy theories, let me touch on some of the COVID-19 theories real quick. Okay. You're not going to get a chip planted into your arm for the government to track you. Nope. Seriously. Do you really think that you are that important that the government is going to track you? They're already watching through your cell phone I don't and think your so. camera. They, they and can your already computer. track if they want to, they can track they you. you they know who you are. You're, they got your tax tax record. Right. They got your social security number. They gave you that number. They can watch you through your Samsung TV, through your smart TV. They can track you through your cell phone. So they don't need to plant a chip they know where in you your are arm and what you're doing. to do this. Come on, folks. Get real about this. Um, your DNA will not be altered. We're going to talk about that. Kim's going to talk about that. So enough of this from me. Kim's going to get into the fun part of the show <laughs> with conspiracy All theories. right, everybody, put your tin hats on. So, of course, because we can never have nice things, there are people who claim that vaccines are terrible ideas for a variety of reasons. The most well-known argument against vaccines is that they cause disorders. Now, autism is probably the most well-known, but anti-vaxxers also believe that vaccines cause problems like Tourette's, SIDS, asthma, eczema, diabetes, peanut allergies, among others. The story of how vaccines came to be questioned as a cause of autism actually dates back to the 1990s. In 1995, a group of British researchers published a cohort study showing that individuals who had been vaccinated with the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, so MMR. that. Uh, you have to, I think, to go to kindergarten. Well, no, uh, yeah, but you know what? I had mump as a kid. I had, oh, you, you know had what? mumps. I don't think I had these vaccines because I had mumps. Right. I had measles. I don't know what, I don't think I ever had rubella. rubella. I don't think I did. Um, I, the chickenpox vaccine was created after I had it. So chickenpox is still a relatively new one because I'm only 38. So it, it's relatively new. Anyway, um, so the group of British researchers. With what I this, do, I started noticing people who, because I have to look at vaccines for people. And I don't want to say exactly what I do, but I, I, I have to screen people, medical files and do stuff like that for them. And there was a about a 
two-year period where people would come in and they weren't vaccinated for this, and then like the next year, about half of them were, and then in the second year of being vaccinated, like every one of them was vaccinated. For chickenpox? MMR. MMR's requirement. Oh, Anyway, so um, this group of researchers in, in 1995 published a study showing that individuals who had been vaccinated with MMR were more likely to have bowel disease than individuals Ooh. who had not received MMR. Ooh. One of those researchers was a gastroenterologist named Andrew Wakefield who went on to further study a possible link between... Okay, when you said bowel disease, my first thought went to diarrhea. I, I mean, yeah. Okay. So uh, Andrew Wakefield went on to further study a possible link between the vaccine and bowel disease by speculating that persistent infection with vaccine virus caused disruption of the intestinal tissue that in turn led to bowel disease and neuropsychiatric disease, specifically autism. Part of this hypothesis, note that this is just hypothesis. a hypothesis, that vaccination was associated with autism had been suggested previously by a few researchers. However, this hypothesis had not been systematically investigated when Wakefield started to look into it. So people go back and they read this stuff, and we're seeing the same thing with COVID right now because yeah. COVID is so new. It's you know right. the novel disease. And it so was, researchers didn't know, and they, right. they published what they thought, and then they get me more research. And they determined, no, no what we thought was not true, this is what it is. And this well, is exactly the same there's thing. There's more to this story. Oh, my gosh. In 1998, Wakefield, along with 12 co-authors, published a case series study claiming that they found evidence in many of the 12 cases. Now, 12 cases is like nothing in the grand scheme of things. 12 cases that they studied of measles virus in the digestive systems of children who had exhibited autism symptoms after MMR vaccination. In the paper, they stated that they could not demonstrate a causal relationship between MMR vaccination and autism. However, Wakefield suggested in a video release that to coincide with the paper's publication that there was a causal relationship between MMR and autism and that the problem was with the combination vaccines in one dose instead of multiple single antigen vaccinations. This fake news? Yes. Okay. Wakefield himself had filed a patent for a single antigen measles vaccine Ooh, in 1997, coming. and so he seems to have a potential financial interest in promoting this view and kind of splitting from the other 11 scientists. That's not a joke. That's not a joke, but it's a womp womp, or it's a snare. You're getting your sounds all mixed up. Anyway, reaction to the Wakefield publication was immediate. Press outlets covered the news widely, and frightened parents began to delay or completely refuse vaccination for their children, both in Britain and in the United States, MMR vaccination rates in Britain plummeted. Over the next 12 years, the possibility of a link between MMR and autism was studied exhaustively. Listen to me carefully. No reputable, relevant study confirmed Wakefield's findings. Instead, many, many well-designed studies have found no link between MMR and bowel disease or MMR and autism. In 2004... That's pretty significant. I mean, yeah. So they proved the hypothesis wrong, essentially. In 2004, 
Dr. Richard Horton, editor so of the Medical... People still go back on the internet. Well, listen and, to this. Okay. In I'm 2004, listening. Dr. Richard Horton, who was the editor of the medical journal in which the initial study was published, wrote that Wakefield should have revealed to the journal that he had been paid by attorneys seeking to Whoa. file lawsuits against vaccine manufacturers. Whoa. And then in television interviews, Horton claimed that Wakefield's research was fatally flawed. Most of the co-authors of the study retracted the interpretation in the paper, and in 2010, the medical journal formally retracted the paper itself. But people still go back and believe this stuff because they read it. They don't take yeah. that next step to thoroughly research what Correct. they're reading. They just believe they're, yeah. they're, it's so like instantaneous. Yes, they just like they re- think they're doing their research and educating themselves, but they're only halfway doing it. And I'm seeing this a lot right now with other things going on. Three months after the retraction in May 2010, Britain's General Medical Council banned Wakefield from practicing medicine in Britain, stating that he had shown callous disregard for children in the course of his research. The council also cited previously uncovered information about the extent to which Wakefield's research was funded by lawyers hoping to sue vaccine manufacturers on behalf of parents of children with autism. Follow the money trail. On January 6, 2011, the British Medical Journal published a report by Brian Deere, a British journalist who had previously reported on flaws in Wakefield's work. And for this new report, Deere spoke with the parents of children from the retracted study and found evidence that Wakefield committed research fraud by falsifying data about the children's conditions. So not only did he have a patent for an individual vaccination as opposed to the MMR like bundle vaccination. He was paid by attorneys, by parents with kids who had autism who wanted to make money off of it, and he falsified the data. That's wrong. Specifically, Deere reported that while the paper claimed that eight of the study's 12 children showed either gastrointestinal or autism-like symptoms days after the vaccination... Records indicate uh, instead that at most two children experienced these symptoms in the time frame, not eight. Additionally, while the paper claimed that... that could be a significant number, though. Two out of 12 instead of eight out of 12? Yeah. Still not enough to... Like, that's still a major difference. Additionally, while the paper claimed that all 12 of the children were previously normal, quotes air quotes on that one, before vaccinations with MMR, at least two had developmental delays that were noted in their records before the vaccination took place. Mm. So, although the findings of Wakefield's paper have long been discredited by scientists, the evidence that the data itself was falsified make this a report by the BMJ a landmark moment in the history of vaccines. Evidence is strong that the original study should not have been published, not merely because it was poorly conducted, but also because it was a product of research fraud. So why do people keep listening to this? Because people believe what they want to believe. Okay. Now, when people started listening to Andrew Wakefield, they also started looking at ingredients in vaccines. Anti-vaxxers will tell you that vaccines contain aluminum and mercury and formaldehyde and GMOs and, my personal favorite, human fetal cells. So let's address each one of those one by one, beginning with some new terminology. Aluminum is what's known as... Or as they say for our listeners overseas, aluminum. (laughs) It's what's known as an adjutant. 
Essentially, that's a fancy word for something that increases the effectiveness of a vaccine. So aluminum, aluminum, which is found in water, foods, and breast milk, is the third most common naturally occurring element in the world. A breastfed infant will naturally ingest around 7 milligrams of aluminum in her diet throughout the first six months of her life. That's assuming it's a girl baby. In contrast, the standard vaccines administered over the first six months of an infant's life contain an average of just 4.4 milligrams of aluminum. So a little over half of what they naturally get out of their mother's breast milk. So aluminum, not an issue. But it sounds scary. It sounds scary. It is not. I promise you. So probably the most accurate of the vaccine ingredient danger claims is the one about the inclusion of mercury in vaccines. Now, here it's important to note that not all mercury is created equal. When we say mercury, we mean thimerosal. Unlike the Declaration of Independence, which says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yeah, we're not talking about men. We're talking about mercury. We're talking about babies. No, we're talking about mercury. Okay. Now, thimerosal contains ethyl mercury, which is found in vaccines. This is different from methylmercury. That's just like alcohol. Which is found in fish. You don't drink like rubbing alcohol, but you drink like bourbon. Right. Methylmercury is often found in fish, and it's found to be harmful in large amounts. Ethylmercury, which is what's in vaccines, has been broken down and excreted. It it gets broken down and excreted from the body much more quickly than methylmercury, and no scientific study has found a link between ethylmercury and any harmful effects. None? None. However, and this is where we talked about vaccines constantly being reevaluated by the FDA. This is what I was talking about. Okay. However, back in 97, children were receiving three vaccines that together contained more mercury than the EPA recommended, although it wasn't more than the FDA limit. So several public health agencies and manufacturer, vaccine manufacturers agreed in 1999 to cease using thimerosal as a precautionary measure. And so today, no vaccine contains thimerosal except the influenza vaccine and thimerosal-free alternatives are available. Okay, I probably shouldn't say this because some people are going to make assumptions, but when I was a little kid, my grandmother had a jar of mercury and i'm assuming it was the bad mercury yeah and she had that jar and as little kids we would take that and we would put it in our hand because it was really cool because it would like roll around and it was don't like, play with mercury yeah and but we did we all me and all my cousins Explains we played with it a lot okay but then we put it back but now if a thermometer in a school breaks they evacuate the entire school yeah different times okay well all right so I guess it's not, I I said it was the most accurate of the vaccine danger claims, but even saying that it's the most accurate is like saying that your chances of winning the lottery are most likely on earth as opposed to Jupiter. We didn't win Powerball. So. No one did. uh, One guy won like a million dollars. Yeah. Anyway, so even though it's the most accurate, as far as danger claims, it's still not dangerous. There's And there's not even thimerosal, the 
quote unquote dangerous ingredient, they don't even use it in vaccines anymore except for the flu. And you can specifically request a thimerosal free flu vaccine. So this argument is a moot point. Now, formaldehyde sounds super scary because it's what we use to preserve dead things. Yeah, like in biology in high school, the the fetal pigs were... Yeah, they're put in formaldehyde. And it's a carcinogen after all, and it causes cancer in large amounts. So why in the world are we putting it in vaccines? Well, because it also inactivates viruses and detoxifies bacterial toxins, ensuring that they don't result in sickness when injected. Oh, and it occurs naturally in the human body already. The amount of formaldehyde found in vaccines is so small, most of it was diluted down to residential or residential residual amounts during the manufacturing process that there is 50 to 70 times more formaldehyde present in an average newborn's body than in a single dose of vaccine. A newborn. Yes. Like a baby. Yes. The highest amount of formaldehyde present in any vaccine is 0.02 milligrams per dose. An average two-month-old baby would have around 1.1 milligrams of formaldehyde circulating in their body with higher naturally occurring amounts in older children. Hmm. So you literally already have formaldehyde in your body. You're just adding a tiny, 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 tiny micro amount more. Like like an x-ray. Yeah. I mean, comparatively right. speaking, the radiation Probably you're getting even from an less. x-ray is... Probably no, even I'm less, honestly. Yeah. The, the amount yes. of radiation you get from an x-ray is... Comparable. But that's yeah. what I'm saying. Probably even less than that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's microscopically tiny amounts of formaldehyde that is not even worth looking at. All right. Now, let's talk about chemistry, specifically GMOs. Now, this is going to be a little bit trickier to follow along, so just do your best. <sighs> I'll try. We're going to talk about DNA and how vaccines are going to alter yours. Actually, let's talk about mRNA. It won't reprogram your brain, but it does reprogram some of your cells in a manner of speaking. And that's not a defect. It's intentional. So to get your head around this, you need to understand what mRNA. It's supposed to like protect you from the virus. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So to get your head around this, you need to understand what mRNA is for. Basically, it's a single-stranded nucleic acid molecule that carries a genetic sequence from the DNA. You still get your cell, right? The cell has a nucleus, and the RNA strand carries a genetic sequence from the DNA in the cell's nucleus into the protein factories, which are called ribosomes. Okay, we said we're going to keep this like at the fifth grade level. I know, this is more like early or late high school. Biology high school, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, it's still high school level biology. Okay. So the protein factories in your DNA and your in your cells are called ribosomes and they sit outside the nucleus in the cellular cytoplasm. So you got picture this in your brain. You got your your nucleus. That's the center of Think of an egg. That's the big yellow thing. Oh, that's a great example. So um the if you're thinking of an egg, the the pro, uh, the nucleus is the yolk. The cellular cytoplasm is like the white part of the inside look, of the look egg. At, look at the big brain on Steve right? over here. So the yolk is the is the nucleus. The liquid white part of the egg inside is the um, cellular cytoplasm. And the, then there are little protein factories in, floating around inside the egg. Those are called ribosomes. They sit outside the yolk in the cytoplasm. Now the M and our mRNA 
stands for messenger. So messenger RNA just carries instructions for the assembly of proteins from the <laughs> DNA template <laughs> to the ribosomes. Yep. Proteins do almost everything that matters in the body. That's it. That's all mRNA does. It carries messages from the proteins to the ribosome. So it tells the ribosomes basically what to do. It's useful for vaccines because scientists can easily reconstruct specific genetic sequences. Okay, you say easily. <laughs> I don't picture this for me as being something easy Well, to do. you're not a genetic scientist. Um, they can easily reconstruct specific genetic sequences for vaccines. My cousin Steph is. For proteins that are unique to the invading virus. So in the COVID case, this is the familiar spike protein. You've all seen it. It looks like that wonky, like, Yes, let's get basketball into some really technical terms here. <laughs> a wonky, oh, wonky basketball. <laughs> um, you've all seen the familiar spiky protein that enables the coronavirus to enter human cells. You picture a, a COVID molecule. It's like that big ball, and then it's got the little spiky thing coming out of it. What mRNA vaccines do is prompt a few of your cells near the injection site to produce that spike protein. This then primes your immune system to build the antibodies and T-cells that will fight off the real coronavirus infection when it comes. It's not hugely different from how traditional vaccines work, but instead of injecting a weakened live or killed virus, the mRNA approach trains your immune system directly with a single protein. Oh, so you're not actually getting injected with a live coronavirus correct oh okay because i've read that like a thousand times in the memes yeah okay it's a lot of sciencey stuff which is probably why a lot of people are afraid of it since people fear what they don't understand i spent about six months studying this stuff and i barely understand it but luckily people who develop vaccines spend decades studying and they do get it so trust them (laughs) they're a heck of a lot smarter than i am and yeah now the touchy bit Those aborted fetal cells. This one's true. Sort of. There are fetal cell lines in vaccines. The history goes like this. In the early 1960s, cells were taken from two legally and electively aborted fetuses. It should be noted that these fetuses were not aborted for the purpose of vaccine development. I don't know why they were aborted None of my business. It could have been back in the 60s. At that time, they, the doctors determined that the, the fetus had or the baby yeah, it had could a... it be that they were just not viable... Viable babies. babies. Okay. Right. Um, so, so they were... And not like even they would have been born and had a correct. birth defect. It was like they were not going they to survive They were not going term. to survive. Yes. Okay. So, for the health of the mother, we don't know why they were aborted, but it ultimately doesn't matter. They were legally and electively aborted fetuses. Um, Those same cells that were taken from those two babies, well, not babies, fetuses, um, have continued to grow in a laboratory and are still used in vaccine testing and development today, and no additional fetal cells have been harvested since. None. None. So they're not going to to Planned Parenthood and taking aborted babies and using this. Absolutely not. So why are we using dead babies to test vaccines? Well, frankly, because viruses tend to grow better in cells from humans than from animals. Fetal cells do not divide as many times as other cell types, so they can be used for longer. It's hard to believe from two. They're still using these cells from two. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, okay. That kind of blows my mind. Yeah, and it's because they're fetal cells. They don't divide as many times as other cell types, so we can use them longer. So that's why we're still using these same from... And the cells that we are using now are thousands of generations removed from those initial cells that were taken. And I'm not saying this is a jokey matter. Those are two hero babies right there. I actually was going to mention that. Um, and we'll get to that in just a second. So in addition, because of the ability to maintain those cells at very low temperatures, like in liquid nitrogen, scientists are able to continue using those same fetal cell lines that were originally isolated in the 1960s. Now, many of the people who argue against vaccines and the use of those original aborted cells claim that they won't get a vaccine for religious reasons. And I understand where those people are coming from, but I'd also argue, like what you said, Steve, that those two fetuses have, according to the World Health Organization, helped to prevent two to three million deaths every year through the vaccines that they've helped develop. So they absolutely are human babies, or human babies, hero babies. Um, the Vatican even has taken a stand on the issue. And I mean, we all know that Catholics the Pope's, are... The Pope's pretty conservative. Yeah, Catholics, uh, traditional especially Catholics, are against any kind of birth control. The Vatican's Pontifical Academy in 2017, the Pontifical Academy for Life, said that lack of vaccinations represent a serious health risk. And they stated, and I quote, in the past, vaccines had been prepared using cells from aborted human fetuses. However, currently used cell lines are very distant from the original abortions. Today, it is no longer necessary to obtain cells from new voluntary abortions and that the cell lines on which the vaccines are based in derive solely from two fetuses originally aborted in the 1960s. Yeah, but even so, if whatever reason those ran out, babies, I mean, it's still in most states and most places, if it's a choice between the baby and the mother and the baby has such severe things issues that the baby is not going to survive term and it's it's a risk to the mothers there's still babies being aborted because of that so they well, could they even, could still get they could even it could even be different i mean i don't even know that they would take it from that they could take it from fertilized eggs that like never there are cases well that's a whole different ethical thing right there too i mean if you have so if you this is way going off topic but if you have um, a fertilized egg that is stored for you cryogenically and you die, what happens to that fertilized egg? Well, that I, is I imagine that some people choose, say like, you can donate if that it egg to has science. been fertilized, it's a but, human life. But that's what I'm yeah. saying. Like yeah. Those mothers could choose to donate that to science for future stem cell growth or whatever else. So, But we've been using these same lines from these same two fetuses since the 1960s, there are no more. We're not going to Planned Parenthood. There are not, like, uh, it's not aborted baby tissue in your vaccine. So those are the two conspiracy theories that we had time for right now. Um, there are other reasons, obviously, why people choose not to get vaccines. Sometimes they're it's legitimate. Like, sometimes people really are allergic to the vaccine and they can't get it. Sometimes, and I really am not passing judgment on you if you're one of these people, sometimes people, for religious reasons, just don't feel comfortable getting a vaccine. They feel like that is t um, not necessarily tempting God, but well, not, not putting full faith in God that he's going to heal you. And there, there are religious organizations that firmly believe this, that if someone gets sick, 
They do not go to the doctor. They pray and they believe through prayer that they will be healed. Now, the, that, but that's believe, a whole other thing right there yep. because some of these people have been um, prosecuted for whatever. But like, that's a whole that's other a topic. Whole that, different that's show. a whole other show. And but I'm anyway, so there you go. There's your uh, little bit of conspiracy theory and the truth behind it. Uh, I actually, if you have somebody that is um, like really into, you know, they, they kind of want to like an anti-vaxxer and you kind of want to debunk some of their things. Historyvaccines.org is a really good one. Publichealth.org is a really good one. If you're not already involved in every other argument on Facebook that you want to get into, here's another one for you. Okay. Look, so look, Take all this for what it's worth. We believe the best way to get us back to normal is to get the shot. Yep. It's it's going to get the kids back in school where they need to be. It's going to get the economy open and get us back to February 2020 and just reset everything and get us back to where everything is operating as we say is normal, as human beings New normal. The new normal, I think there will be a new normal. I don't think it's going to be just like in February 2020 anymore, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing either. Conspiracy theories can be fun, but they can also be very, very dangerous. Yeah. As we are witnessing right now, and I don't want to even get into that. No, let's not. I don't even want to go there right now. That'll make me I saw all the memes and the virus, and lo and behold, it didn't go away after election day like so many (laughs) memes predicted. Yeah. It isn't going to go away after the inauguration here in a couple of days, like a lot of the memes are saying. Nostradamus would have been great if he would have had Facebook and memes. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I don't even yeah. want to think about yeah. it. We encourage you, as Stephen Kim from An Hour of Your Life, we encourage you to do some legitimate research on these topics. Like we always say, Kim, what do we say? Do your research and, and educate, educate yourself. yourself. Yeah, Avoid extremism. And remember, those news networks, whether wh- whichever one you're listening to, and we're going to name, not name anybody, but those news networks, they're making their money by getting people spun up, and that's what gets their listeners, and that's what drives their money. So go, go into it with a little bit of common sense, folks. We are not experts. This is what we believe. Do what you think is best for you and talk to your doctor. Yeah. Your doctor. Kim and Steve are not doctors. We don't claim to be. This is what we believe. Talk to your doctor. Yep. They're a lot smarter than we are. We are way over an hour, I think. Yeah, we're way over an hour. Sorry. Yeah. You guys get some bonus content this week. Bonus content. Yeah. Kim, anything else you got to add to this tonight? Uh, Just about the socials. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Um, Twitter, it's at a lost hour. Facebook and Instagram, it's an hour of your life. You can write to us at Gmail. Um, It's a lost hour at gmail.com. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a couple episodes ago, we were a little bit short. So, it's going to average out. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So... From our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour-ish of your life with us.
Sources this week include Kendall Hoyt from Dartmouth College, HistoryVaccines.org, PublicHealth.org, Cornell University, Very Well Health, and good old Wikipedia.